It's wonderful to be with you. So this morning we're going to continue in our survey of church history. Pastor Brian has asked me to come and over the course of this fall uh, talk through some of the things that happened in the early centuries of the church and we get the joy of doing that again this morning. So thank you for letting me come and be part of this. It was just a joy even to hear the song sung in Hebrew from Psalm 8 this morning. Certainly want to welcome back everyone who might be here from Ibex, and we are continuing to pray for our ministry partners and friends in that part of the world in Israel who are affected by the conflict there. So certainly want to keep them in mind, but welcome to the students from TMU who are back from, from Ibex. Uh, this morning is going to be more lecture than sermon, much like the previous four installments of this have been. The lecture slides are available, as I've mentioned before, on a website called forerunnersofthefaith.com. And I don't know if my lecture slides are showing up on the screen, but whether they show up or not won't affect my ability to talk about what we want to talk about this morning. Uh, it is October 22nd, which if you're keeping track means it is 64 days until Christmas. Christmas is nine weeks from tomorrow, so it's uh, time to start your Christmas shopping if you haven't already. Nine weeks from tomorrow. When my kids were little, they used to ask me sort of the stereotypical kid question around Christmas about Santa Claus. They never thought that Santa represented something real, but they engaged with friends and others, and they had questions about how to interact with other families that perhaps treated the, the Santa tradition a little differently than ours. So I found myself as a dad having to answer the question, what do we think about Santa? And obviously, when we think about Santa as sort of this overweight, red-garbed, Norwegian, sled-driven character, when we think of him as the caricature that Hallmark and Hollywood have turned him into, of course the answer is no, we do not believe in Santa. That version of Santa never existed. And I apologize if I just, yeah, somebody said, what, what? <clears throat> but I would tell my kids, and this is sort of the curse for them of being children of someone who teaches history, I said, but there was a pastor in the fourth century, whose name was Nicholas, Nicholas of Myra. Myra is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So there was a fourth-century Turkish pastor, and he was a follower of Jesus. And then I would tell them about the Council of Nicaea, which is what we're going to talk about today. Because Nicholas of Myra was there at the Council of Nicaea. And my favorite Santa Claus story, so the conversation would go from, no, we don't believe in Santa, to me then telling them my favorite Santa Claus story. By the way, Santa Claus is a derivative of the Dutch Sinterklaas, which in Dutch means Saint Nicholas. And so Nicholas of Myra, because he was really generous and he gave things to poor people, traditions arose about his gift giving. And over time, he became the patron saint of sailors, and the Dutch were into sailing, so he became kind of their main patron saint, Sinterklaas, which came into English as Santa Claus. Okay. So, 
at the Council of Nicaea, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in detail this morning, but the Council of Nicaea was all about the deity of Christ, and there was a heretic named Arius who was denying the deity of Christ, and there was an emperor named Constantine who had convened this council, and so there's this imperial council in Nicaea, which is near Constantinople, which today we call Istanbul, Turkey. So it's in that part of the world. And he has summoned all of the pastors from all over the Roman Empire to come. And Arius is presenting his views that denies the deity of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, this pastor from Myra, Nicholas of Myra, gets up unannounced and uninvited, and walks to the front of this imperial council in front of, again, the ruler over the entire Roman Empire. And having heard Arius deny the deity of Christ, Nicholas looked Arius in the face, squared him up, and smacked him. (laughs) Smacked him in the face for blasphemy. Now, That's a little bit more harsh, I think, than putting coal in Arius' stocking. Uh, I find it just a fascinating story. Of course, we would never condone violence of any kind, but I just think it's so amazing that you have Santa Claus, the pastor, Nicholas of Myra, standing up at a council in church history and confronting a false teacher to the point of being so zealous and jealous for the deity of Christ and the honor of Christ that he actually was willing to disrupt the formal ceremony and to confront Arius for blasphemy. Now, as a result of that, Nicholas ended up getting put in prison because you're not supposed to disrupt a formal imperial council. Even if you're defending the deity of Christ, you still get put in jail. But I find that a fascinating story about the real Santa Claus, who was a pastor in Turkey in the fourth century and who worshiped Jesus. So what I would tell my kids is, no, Santa Claus is not real, unless you're talking about Nicholas of Myra, in which case Santa Claus worshiped Jesus. And when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the fact that he who is eternally God the Son took on flesh and became a man, and being born in Bethlehem, He took on flesh, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, the incarnation, and then as man, lived a perfect life, died on a cross as a substitute for sin, was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now, fully God and fully man, he is the perfect mediator between God and man. And that's what Christmas represents. And when you see some, you know, overweight Norwegian guy with a beard and a red fur suit being portrayed as Nicholas in a store or on, you know, a lawn somewhere as you're driving through looking at Christmas lights, you can tell your kids, hey, Santa Claus, yeah, he's not real. But let me tell you about the fourth century pastor, Nicholas of Myra, who worshiped Jesus. All right, so today we're going to be talking all about the deity of Christ and defending the deity of Christ in particular. Now, the last time I was here, I referenced the fact that when we work our way through church history, it's important to keep in mind kind of where we are. And I even referenced the fact that 
you know, when you go to the mall or to the outlets, you try and find, or at least I do, the directory because I want to know where I am and I want to know how to get to the food court. That's pretty much my goal in those moments. And I want to free my wife up for her to be able to do whatever she's going to do while I'm waiting in the food court. But this morning, I want to give us just a rudimentary map for where we are. We have talked about the fact that you can think about church history as a building and that four or uh, four story building, each of the stories represents 500 years. We are still this morning on the first floor of that four story building and we are going to be looking at things that took place in the fourth century in particular. Over the previous weeks, we've talked about the first century, which was the apostolic age, the second century, which involved the time of the apostolic fathers, and that included men like Papias of Smyrna and, uh, or excuse me, Papias of Herapolis and Polycarp of Smyrna and Ignatius of Antioch and those guys. And then we moved into the third century and talked a little bit last week about some of the third century church fathers. We had to skip past kind of quickly Tertullian and Origen. And then today we're going to be talking about the fourth century. So the first three centuries considered the Antonicene period. That's because the Council of Nicaea is such an important event in early church history that it actually is the dividing marker for thinking about the period of the church fathers. So the period of the church fathers is this umbrella period called the Patristic Age, and the Council of Nicaea divides it essentially in half so that those church fathers who lived before the Council of Nicaea are called anta, meaning before Nicaea, anti-Nicene, and those who lived after are called post-Nicene church fathers. Now, I don't know when you'll ever use that information, but perhaps if you're in a Christian bookstore somewhere, you'll see anti-Nicene fathers, post-Nicene fathers. You'll know that that means the guys who lived either before or after the Council of Nicaea. Now, as we come into the fourth century, the church in the early 300s, which is the fourth century, experienced significant transition. And the reason why is because if you go all the way back to the first century, the church in the Roman Empire was severely persecuted by the Roman government. And in addition to that, they were also rejected and opposed by those in Roman society. And so we even talked a little bit last week about how Christians were called to be both apologists and polemicists, meaning that they had to defend the faith from those outside the church, and they also had to contend earnestly for the faith from those who would introduce false teaching. Well, the situation for Christians in the Roman Empire took a dramatic turn when Constantine arrived on the scene. And you've probably heard the name Constantine before. Maybe you even remember something about Constantine. But Constantine was the first Roman emperor to profess to be a Christian. And in fact, Christians in the Roman Empire had been severely persecuted, starting with Nero in AD 64, and then periodically and kind of regionally throughout the next 250 years, all the way through the reign of an emperor named Diocletian, who 
His reign ended around the year 306. And the 300s, you'll remember, is the 4th century, because centuries are always named for the last year in the century. And so from 301 to 400 is the 4th century in church history. When Constantine came to the throne, Constantine had to struggle against a couple of rival emperors or those who would be rivals for the throne, a guy named Maxentius and his son Maximian. But anyway, Maximian and Maxentius were in Rome and they had a larger army, but Constantine came and at a battle called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, he had an unexpected victory over Maximian and Maxentius. And why that's significant is because during that battle, Constantine claimed that he actually saw some sort of sign of something, maybe the sign of a cross, and heard a voice from heaven telling him to go and conquer in the sign of the cross. Now, did that really happen? Uh, We don't know. But Constantine claimed that it happened, and based on that claim, he converted to Christianity, and he began to reign not as a pagan emperor, but as a Christian emperor. And the following year, in the year 313, he issued an edict called the Edict of Milan, which brought peace to all of the Christians living in the Roman Empire. And you can appreciate the fact that that represented a very, very significant change. So Christians in the Roman Empire in the year 305 are public enemy number one. They are being persecuted, hunted down, imprisoned, tortured, executed. And just 10 years later, they are protected and promoted within the Roman world because the emperor has become a Christian. You can imagine how excited they would have been. I mean, even here in the United States, you have evangelical Christians get super excited when a politician who claims to be Christian gets voted in. (laughs) Take that enthusiasm and excitement and times it by an exponential amount, and you can appreciate how much the Christians who were losing family members or being tortured themselves were excited to have on the throne someone who claimed to be a Christian. Well, in 312 at that battle, Constantine, he conquered the western half of the Roman Empire, and in 324, he conquered the eastern half of the Roman Empire, and so he became the sole ruler over a united Roman Empire. That's in the year 324, and as a Christian emperor, and there is some debate about whether or not Constantine was truly a Christian, because some of the things he did didn't seem very Christian-like, but he certainly was authentic in his claim to be a Christian and in his support of the church. In 324, he becomes the sole ruler, and the very next year, he convenes the first major church council in church history called the Council of Nicaea, which took place in the year 325. And we're going to talk a little bit about that council this morning. Uh, Some of you have perhaps heard about the Council of Nicaea, maybe not. Uh, Some of you have heard about the Nicene Creed. That's the creed that comes from this council. It's one of the most important historic creeds and confessions in all of 
church history, and it specifically relates to the deity of Christ. And we're going to get into a little bit of the details this morning. Uh, Athanasius is a name that perhaps you've heard. Athanasius was a deacon in the church in Alexandria, Egypt in the early 300s up and through the time of the Council of Nicaea. Now, one of the reasons I think that this church history is very, very relevant is because you still have groups today that deny the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And those groups can look like Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Standing on your doorstep on a Saturday afternoon, knocking on the door and saying that they believe that Jesus is an important and maybe even semi-divine figure, but denying that he is God, very God, equal in his essence to God the Father. Other groups would be Muslims who deny the deity of Christ. Unitarians deny the deity of Christ. And even certain popular books and movies, I realize this is dating the lecture to reference the Da Vinci Code from 15 years ago or however long ago it was, but things like that that call into question the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And I think a question that we all need to ask ourselves is where in Scripture would we go to defend that doctrine if we were in a conversation with someone who denied the deity of the Messiah. Church history helps us because that was the issue that caused the Council of Nicaea to convene in the year 325. And the pastors, some 318 senior pastors, along with their elders and deacons who came and uh, gathered for that, uh, for that council. I think of it like an early shepherd's conference, but they came and gathered for that council. They were committed to looking to the scriptures in order to defend this key doctrine. And in the same way that they look to the scriptures, we also need to look to the scriptures to make sure that we defend the doctrines that are core to our understanding of the faith. All right, so in the 4th century, a new heresy arose, and uh, last time I was with you, we talked through a number of heresies, the isms and schisms of church history, but in the 4th century, the early 300s, there was a new heresy that arose because of a, an elder, a presbyter in the church at Alexandria whose name was Arius. So the pastor of the church of Alexandria at the time was a guy named Alexander, Alexander of Alexandria. It's an easy name to remember because his name and the place where he was from are almost the same. It would be like having a pastor here named Fernando of San Fernando. So we have Alexander of Alexandria. And Alexander is preaching through the gospel of John. And in John 1, right in those first few verses, he is affirming, and rightly so, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Alexander is affirming the eternality of God the Son. Well, Arius, who was an elder in the church, took issue with that because he believed that the, that the Son of God was a created being 
and therefore was not co-eternal with God the Father. And that's what caused this initial controversy. And so you have Arius making claims. In fact, he had slogans, things like this. There was a time when he was not. That was what Arius would say about the Son of God. And so Arianism was very much like a fourth century version of the Jehovah's Witness theology. He denied the eternality of God the Son. And based on that, if God the Son is not co-eternal with God the Father, then that means that he cannot be of the same essence as God the Father, because God the Father is eternal and uncreated. And Arius said that God, that the Son of God, he wouldn't have said God the Son, he would have said the Son of God is created and non-eternal, and therefore of a different essence. And along with that, if according to Arius's logic, and this is heresy just for the recording and the record, um, according to Arius's logic, if the Son of God is not eternal like the Father and He's not of the same essence as the Father, then He cannot be equal to the Father. So Arius denied the eternality, the co-essentiality, and the co-equality of the Son to the Father. All right, so this is a major, major issue because at its core, it's focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Is the Son of God God the Son, or is the Son of God a created being who is somehow less than fully God? That was the issue at stake. And uh, this issue was creating major controversy throughout the Roman Empire. And so Constantine, as the first Christian emperor, is concerned about the fact that he needs to deal with this theological controversy. And so the very next year, after uniting the Roman Empire under his rule, he commissions and convenes this church council. The reason there weren't church councils before this, I mean, there kind of is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, we call that the Jerusalem council. But the reason there weren't councils in between AD 49 or 50 when the council of Jerusalem met and the council of Nicaea in 325 is because Christians were persecuted. They had no way of gathering in mass to meet and discuss these kinds of theological issues because the political situation simply didn't allow for it. And now, with a Christian emperor on the throne, they're able to gather and assemble together to discuss this very, very important issue. And along with Arius, you had Athanasius, who was a deacon at the time, who was opposing Arius, and Alexander, the pastor, also opposing Arius. All right, so the key question, is the Son of God co-eternal, co-essential, and co-equal with God the Father, or is the Son a created being who is less than fully or truly God? Uh, At the council itself, so the council 
met in 325. As I mentioned, there were 318 pastors from all over the Roman Empire who came, and they came with all of their elders and deacons, so it probably was a large, large group. There were three views that were put forward. The first view was Arius's original view, and I, I know it's we had Hebrew this morning, right, in the singing time, so now we're going to have a little bit of Greek in the lecture component of this. There were three views. The first is heterousius. Usius is the word from which we get the English word essence. Hetero means different. So heterousius was Arius's view that the son was of a different essence than the father. This view was immediately rejected by the council, and it was when Arius presented this view that Nicholas of Myra got up and smacked him in the face and put Arius on the naughty list. So that's what happened when this view was presented. Over against this view was the view of Alexander, the pastor of Alexandria, and Athanasius. This is the biblical view. We would call this the orthodox view, meaning that which is straight or true or right. And that is the view of homoousius, homo meaning same, ousius meaning essence, that the son is of the same essence as the father. The son is eternal. He is uncreated and he is of the same essence as the father and therefore the son is co-eternal, co-essential and co-equal with God the Father. Well, because this was a, a council that involved even the emperor, there was some political components to this. And so there was a guy there who thought, you know what, maybe we could present a middle view, like sort of a view that everyone can agree on so we can all just get along. And that view was called homoousius, which in Greek, like in English, is different from the homoousius view by only one letter. It's the letter iota in Greek or a letter I in English, and it means of a similar substance. But the problem with that, and in fact, when Arius saw this view introduced, he immediately changed his view. He said, well, I'm not the heterousius guy anymore. Now I'm the homoousius guy. But the problem with similar is that similar still means different, right? If I say, well, this, you know, Jesus is of a similar substance or essence to God the Father. The reality is I'm still saying that there's something different about his essence from that of the Father's. And of course, that view, although softer, is essentially just the first view in more palatable language. So these were the three views that were put forth with the first view immediately rejected and the second two views were the views that were considered. All right, modern skeptics and heretical movements continue to deny the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Along with it, they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the, so the Council of Nicaea is very, very important for us because Again, it's an affirmation both of the deity of Christ and the corollary doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the Da Vinci Code. Uh, I remember the publish, publication of the Da Vinci Code because I actually read it in the hospital while my wife was giving birth to our third son. 
and he's now almost 18 years old. So that just goes to show how outdated this illustration is with the Da Vinci Code, but it's still something that people recognize, mainly because Tom Hanks decided to be in a movie of the same title. But in the Da Vinci Code, uh, Dan Brown, and this was a runaway bestseller when it was published, Dan Brown made all sorts of outrageous claims. In fact, in the book itself, if you ever pick up a copy, which I wouldn't recommend, but if you ever do, in the book itself, there's an, an opening page called the fact page, right? It's supposed to be a work of fiction. Uh, there's something called the fact page, and it has three things on it that it portrays as facts, and all three of them are totally false. It's kind of funny. Even the fact page is totally false. The only thing true in the Da Vinci Code is in the copyright section where the publisher says this is a work of fiction and all things in this work are fictional. That's the only true thing in the Da Vinci Code. But in any case, <clears throat> there's a character in the Da Vinci Code, Sir Lee Teabing, who makes this comment. He says, Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, and it was a relatively close vote at that. So you can see the way that skeptics and critics and heretics view the Council of Nicaea. They see it as, okay, there were three views put forward, and everybody took a vote, and at the end of it, Constantine decided to go with the people who voted for Jesus to be God, and so in 325, Jesus got a major promotion, but nobody prior to 325 thought he was God. That's the claim. Okay. Here's a tract from the Jehovah's Witnesses. For many years, there had been much opposition to the developing idea that Jesus was God, to try and solve this dispute, Roman Emperor Constantine summoned all bishops to Nicaea. Constantine's role was crucial. After two months of furious religious debate, the pagan politician intervened and decided in favor of those who said that Jesus was God. All right, so here you have the Jehovah's Witnesses agreeing with the Da Vinci Code saying, yeah, the deity of Jesus is something that only dates back to the fourth century, and it was a doctrine that was imposed upon the church by Constantine and the other leaders at the Council of Nicaea. So the key question then is, was the doctrine of Christ's deity, along with the doctrine of the Trinity, invented in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea? The answer to that question requires us to look at both biblical and historical evidence. Now, spoiler alert, just in case anybody's getting nervous this morning or in case you have to leave before I'm done, the answer is no, the doctrine of the deity of Christ was not invented in the fourth century. I, I know you already knew that, but uh, just in case, we'll take all the suspense out of it. I'm not like Jade. I'm not trying to keep you in suspense this morning. As we talk about this, though, there's really three things that I think we need to consider. The first is the matter of biblical authority. And that's because when it comes to a doctrine, whether it's the doctrine of the deity of Christ or any other doctrine from the gospel to eschatology to anything else that we believe, it has to always be established and grounded in the truth of Scripture. 
right? So we could prove that the claim the Da Vinci Code is making, that Jehovah's Witnesses are making, that others make about the doctrine of the deity of Christ being invented in the fourth century, we can disprove that claim simply by looking to the scriptures. Because if the doctrine of the deity of Christ and by correlation, the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine that's established in scripture, then the biblical evidence for that doctrine disproves the notion that it was invented four centuries later in church history. Not only that, but Scripture is our final and ultimate authority for what we believe and how we live. And so every doctrine has to be established in Scripture. To say otherwise is to deny both the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. So that's where we have to start. And what I think is so encouraging about this is that this same evidence was the evidence that the church fathers at at the Council of Nicaea were looking to in their defense of this doctrine. In fact, Gregory of Nyssa, he's a fourth century church father. He was battling in debate with the followers of Arius, who are known as Arians. And he simply makes the case that the inspired scripture must be our umpire. And the role of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with divine words. So even in the fourth century, the church fathers recognized the authority is scripture. That's where we look for why we believe what we believe. All right, so I go back to the question of if you have some Jehovah's Witnesses standing on your doorstep and they're saying, we don't believe that Jesus is God. Instead, we believe that he's a created being who's not eternal and not equal with God the Father. Where would you go in the Bible to demonstrate that, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible, in fact, clearly teaches that Jesus is God and that he is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Well, I'll give you just a, a few categories here to consider. I've got 10 categories in this list. Uh, number one is what I call divine power. In the old, excuse me, divine prophecy See if I can read my own PowerPoint. Divine prophecy. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would be mighty God, Isaiah 9.6. Other Old Testament passages also imply the truth of the Trinity. You can see it as something that is inferred in the Old Testament. But Isaiah 9.6 is a very important passage because it not only declares that the Messiah will be known as mighty God, but also as... It's usually in English translated as eternal father, but a better translation would be the father of eternity. So the eternity of the Messiah is, or the eternality of the Messiah is predicted in the Old Testament itself. A second category would be divine existence. Jesus explained that he was with the father in eternity past before the world began. And you can see in places like John 1 and John 17, Uh, things like him asking that the Father would restore to him the glory that they shared before the world began. The divine name, by calling himself I Am in John 8, 58, Jesus identified himself as Yahweh, the covenant name for God in the Old Testament. And that covenant name means I am who I am. You can find that in Exodus 3, 14 and 15. 
And in fact, there are other places in the New Testament where the New Testament authors take an Old Testament passage about Yahweh and apply it directly to Jesus. So for example, in Matthew 3, verse 3, the New Testament quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, and applies the divine name Yahweh directly to Jesus. Same thing in Romans 10, 13 from Joel 2, 32, applies the name Yahweh directly to Jesus. One of my favorites is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, where Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's a quote from Isaiah 45, where Yahweh says, at my name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And then uh, one more, just for good measures, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where it says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Verses 14 and 15 of 1 Peter 3 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, where again, Yahweh is in view. So when Peter says, sanctify Jesus as Lord, he really is saying, sanctify Jesus as Yahweh in your heart. So all throughout the New Testament, the New Testament authors are taking the divine name of God, Yahweh, which implies, in fact, it more than implies, it indicates his eternality. I am who I am. And they take that name and apply it directly to Jesus. Number four in my list, divine authority. Jesus claimed authority over the Sabbath. He claimed authority over the ultimate destinies of people. He also claimed the authority to forgive sins. And in every one of these cases, this is an authority that belongs only to God. God is the Lord of the Sabbath and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. God determines eternal destinies and Jesus determines eternal destinies. God can forgive sins and Jesus can forgive sins. I love Mark 2 when the Pharisees are like, why would he say your sins are forgiven? Doesn't he know that only God can forgive sins? And the answer is yes, he knows that. And he can still forgive sins because he's God. Number five, divine power. With nothing more than a word, Jesus calmed storms, cast out demons, and healed diseases and infirmities. He did things that only God can do, and he did them in the way that God does them. How did God create the world? With a word. In fact, we've learned from John chapter 1 that it was through Jesus that the world was created. Divine ownership. Jesus claimed possession of that which belongs to God alone, including the angels. He called God's angels his angels, the elect. He called God's people his people, and the kingdom. He called God's kingdom his kingdom. Number seven, divine exaltation. The Old Testament forbids the worship of anyone but God alone, yet the New Testament declares Jesus to be worthy of worship. In fact, Jesus accepted worship, and the clear implication is that he is God. Number eight, divine titles. Jesus applied divine titles to himself. He called himself the Son of Man, which we tend to think of as an emphasis on his humanity, but it's actually a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where one like the Son of Man was standing in heaven with the Ancient of Days. It's a divine title. He also called himself the Son of God. Number nine, divine unity. Jesus explained that he is in perfect unity with the Father. If Jesus were not co-equal with the Father, he could not make such a claim. I and the Father are one. And then number 10 in my list of 10, divine affirmation. The rest of the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is God. And 
you can see through that list of references, there are many places in the New Testament where the apostolic authors affirm the fact that Jesus is God, very God, and that he ought to be worshiped and obeyed and revered as God. Now, I went through that quickly. Obviously, we could have taken our whole time to expand and explore on any one of those 10 points, but the reason it's so important to start with the biblical data is because I don't want you to walk out of here and think, well, I'm a Trinitarian because in the fourth century there was a church council and they decided that we should believe in the Trinity. That's not why you should embrace the doctrine of the Trinity, nor is it why you should worship the Lord Jesus Christ as God. We worship him as God because God himself in his word has revealed that truth about himself We worship the true God as a triune God because the scriptures reveal that reality about God on the pages that God himself inspired. So no one's a Trinitarian because of a council in church history. We're Trinitarians because of what God has revealed about himself in his word. Okay, so it's just really important that everyone understands that before we go back to the church history and talk about what happened in the fourth century. The biblical evidence then for the doctrine of the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity is overwhelming. And it was that same truth to which the leaders of the church in the year 325, they were looking at this same truth as they were defending the doctrine of the deity of Christ against a false teacher, Arius, who had issued an attack on that core doctrine. Okay, we can go from there then to talk a little bit about what we would call patristic affirmation. So we start with biblical authority, and that's where we have to start with any doctrine. We believe what we believe because it is in the Bible. And when Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door or Somebody at your job says, hey, I just watched a rerun of The Da Vinci Code and I've got questions or whatever. You don't need to remember church history to be able to answer their questions. All you need is your Bible, okay? And I think that's just very, very important to reinforce. But since this is a lecture on church history, we're going to talk a little bit about church history. And the claim, again, that was made by, in this case, Dan Brown through one of his characters or the Jehovah's Witnesses through one of their tracks, the claim that was made was that no one in pre-Nicene church history believed in the doctrine of the deity of Christ. It's something that was invented in the fourth century by Constantine and the bishops who were there at the Council of Nicaea. Well, we've already shown that that's not true because if it's in the Bible, the Bible predates the Council of Nicaea, obviously. But what about the people who lived after the time of the apostles and before the Council of Nicaea? Does the claim have any credibility when we look at the Antonicene patristic age? Well, no, it doesn't have any credibility. And let me show you just some examples. And uh, we probably have, I don't know, two, three dozen examples that we could show you. I'm not going to show you all of them, but I just want you to know that these examples are illustrative and representative of the chorus of affirmation from the earliest church fathers. Ignatius of Antioch, 
I don't know if you remember him from week two or week three, but we did talk about him earlier in this class. And you can see the dates when he lived, the sea there meaning circa, so around the year 50 until his death around the year 115 or 117 or so. But look at what he says in his letter to the Ephesians. We have also, we have also as a physician, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word, before time began, but who afterwards became also man of Mary the Virgin, for the Word was made flesh. So here you have a disciple of the Apostle Peter, according to tradition, an early pastor of the church in Antioch. And what does he say? He calls Jesus the Lord our God, and he says that he was before time began. That's an emphasis on both his deity and his eternality. Here's Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp in his letter to the Philippians, to all those under heaven who will yet believe in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, and in his Father who raised him from the dead. Another clear connection of the title God to the person of Jesus. I mean, it reminds me of Titus chapter 2, right? Titus 2 uh, verses 11 to 14, where Paul talks about the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here you have these early church fathers saying, yeah, Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God. Justin Martyr, permit me first to recount the prophecies which I wish to do in order to prove that Christ is called both God and Lord of hosts. And what's interesting about that particular quote, and again, this is representative of a number of these kinds of quotes from Justin's work, is this is in his dialogue with Trypho. Trypho was a non-Christian Jewish man, and they had a very irenic discussion looking to the Old Testament where Justin as a Christian was showing Trypho all the places in the Old Testament that affirm that Jesus is both the Messiah and not just the Messiah, but God, very God. Uh, Irenaeus, that he is himself in his own right beyond all men who ever lived, God and Lord and King eternal and uh, in the incarnate word proclaimed by all the prophets, the apostles, and by the Spirit himself. This may be seen by all who have attained to even a small portion of the truth. So here's Irenaeus responding to the false teachers, the Gnostic heresy, and he's saying, Jesus is above anyone who ever lived. He is God, and he is Lord, and he is King eternal. So an emphasis on the, both the, de the deity and the eternality of Jesus Christ. Uh, Tertullian, we didn't get to talk a lot about Tertullian uh, the last time I was here, and that's because... I have the ability to take um, a small amount of time and uh, overrun it, <laughs> I guess. Um, but Tertullian is considered the father of Latin theology. In the Roman Empire in the East, they spoke Greek, and in the West, they spoke Latin. And of course, because everything in the New Testament happened in the East, uh, it was mainly a Greek-speaking uh, theology that developed in the early centuries until we get to Tertullian, he's the first major theologian to write in Latin. 
And in fact, as part of that, he's the one who coins the term Trinity. But all Trinity means is three in one, tri-unity. And so the Latin word for three in oneness is the word Trinity. And of course, we find that truth taught in Scripture, even if the term is something that was developed later. But here's what Tertullian says. He says, For God alone is without sin, and the only man without sin is Christ, since Christ is also God. Caius of Milan. And again, you'll notice the dates here, written probably around between 180 and 217, so around the year 200. I mean, this is still more than 100 years prior to the Council of Nicaea. And I don't need to read this full quote, but what Caius talks about is the fact that all of the church fathers prior to his time have affirmed the doctrine of the deity of Christ. So not only are church fathers affirming this, but they're also aware of the fact that everyone else is affirming this, which I think is pretty amazing. So when we talk about biblical authority, it was their understanding of Scripture that caused them to affirm a doctrine that they saw clearly taught in the Bible. And so the early church fathers affirm that truth based on what they see in the scriptures. So to the claim that was made that Constantine and those who attended the Council of Nicaea, that they invented the doctrine of the deity of Christ and gave Jesus a massive promotion in the fourth century, we can respond to that by saying that's not true because, number one, that doctrine is taught in Scripture. Case closed. But number two, just because we're talking about history, let's talk about it. The early church fathers who lived prior to the Council of Nicaea and after the time of the apostles understood that Jesus is God. They worshiped him as God, and they recognized that everyone else who was orthodox in the church also believed those same things. So... The claim is just patently false. So what did happen in the 4th century, in the early 300s? Well, you have a council coming together and articulating these doctrines that are clearly taught in Scripture that everyone has believed since the time of the apostles. And the reason they have to articulate these things is because for the first time in church history, the doctrine has come under attack. And what usually happens in these councils is that they're articulating what they've always known to be true, but they're doing so in a way that specifically defends against the false teaching that has arisen that is causing them to need to meet. So creedal articulation. So at the Council of Nicaea, it did not determine or established the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Rather, it affirmed and defended that doctrine specifically against the false claims of Arius and his followers. And so in response to those false claims, the Council of Nicaea determined that, uh, excuse me, determined the deity of Christ. Read that again. In response to the claim that the Council of Nicaea determined the deity of Christ by a relatively close vote, the following points should be made. So that was the allegation that was made by Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code. First, 
This doctrine is determined not by a council, but by Scripture. And if it can be defended from Scripture, who cares what a council's decided? Then secondly, it was clearly affirmed by Christian leaders in the centuries prior to the Council of Nicaea. So it was not something that was invented. And then finally, the idea that it was a close vote is totally false. Again, I told you that everything in the Da Vinci Code is a lie. Um, again, except for that little caveat on the copyright page that everything in this book is false. That's the only thing true in the whole book. But there were 318 bishops who came to the council. Of those 318 senior pastors, that's the better way to think about the word bishop, 318 senior pastors, 316 of them affirmed the Nicene Creed. In other words, 316 out of 318 affirmed the fact that yes, Jesus is God. There were only two that refused and they were BFFs with Arius. They were guys who were close allies of Arius and for political reasons, they didn't want to sign the Nicene Creed. But again, it it wasn't a vote. It was an affirmation of what has the church always believed and what does the Bible teach? And for 316 out of 318 to say, we know what the Bible teaches and what the church has always believed is not a relatively close vote. All right, I just want to read a short section out of the Nicene Creed, just so that you know what the Nicene Creed says. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Uh, the, again, because this council involved both Greek speakers and Latin speakers, you have two different words that get used to refer to the uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. One is the word usia. That's a Greek word from which we get our English word essence. The other is a Latin word, substantia, from which we get our English word substance. So when you see the word substance, that's the same as the word essence. It's just coming from the Latin rather than coming from the Greek. All right, a little bit more here from the Nicene Creed. And this is, this is the why the incarnation matters, right? Who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven, and he shall come again to judge both the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's the the Nicene Creed. Now, that creed is going to get expanded a little bit with regard to the Holy Spirit about 50 years later at another church council called the First Council of Constantinople. But what was at issue in terms of doctrine at the Council of Nicaea was the eternality and deity of Jesus. And this was the articulation of that doctrine. Again, not to invent something new, but to put into clear language what the church had always believed and what they saw being taught on the pages of Scripture. So is Jesus God? The answer is yes, but not because of a council, 
Jesus is God because of the fact that he has revealed that, well, we believe that Jesus is God, better way to say this, Jesus is God because Jesus is God, right? That's the truth of it. But we believe that Jesus is God because he has revealed that truth about himself through the Holy Spirit on the pages of Scripture. All right. Um, Just as a side note, because I think it's interesting, the other thing that was sort of discussed at the Council of Nicaea, not nearly as important as the doctrine of the deity of Christ, but just so you know, was the date of Easter. And that was because in the Eastern church, they celebrated Easter with the Passover, which honestly makes a lot more sense. And in the Western church, they celebrated Passover in keeping with the spring equinox. And I feel like the Council of Nicaea got it absolutely right. In fact, it's not about my feelings. I know the Council of Nicaea got it absolutely right when it comes to the doctrine of the deity of Christ. When it comes to the date of Easter, if you've ever looked at your spring calendar and wondered why Easter jumps around every year, it's because of the Council of Nicaea. Because the Council of Nicaea decided that the date of Easter should be on the first Lord's Day after the first full moon after the spring equinox. So you can find Easter by finding the first day of spring, that's the spring equinox, finding the first full moon after that, finding the first Sunday after that, that's going to be Easter. Now you know. Okay. (laughs) Just as we close today, I want to talk a little bit about Athanasius, because even after the Council of Nicaea, there were still those in the Roman Empire who they continued to oppose the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And even more than that, they continued to oppose those who were defenders of that doctrine because they felt like they were causing schism and division and can't we just all get along? But Athanasius, who was a deacon during the time of the Council of Nicaea, but actually helped write the Nicene Creed, he became a staunch defender of this doctrine for the rest of his ministry. He actually went back to Alexandria, Egypt, and after Alexander died, Athanasius became the senior pastor of that church. And yet, because of his faithful defense of this doctrine, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, he found himself exiled from his church a total of five times for a composite of 17 years. So for 17 years of his ministry, he had to live in hiding because he was being chased out of his pastorate because he was so determined to defend the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And uh, he got exiled five different times. I want to skip ahead to this story that John Piper tells in, here it is, in his book, uh, um, Contending for Our All. Uh, It's one of the Swans Are Not Silent series. If you go on the Desiring God website, Piper has a whole series of short biographies that are really, really good, and they're all available for free. And I just think this is so fascinating. Athanasius defends the doctrine of the deity of Christ at a council. The council affirms that. And yet even after the council's over, people are still debating about this. And he's just trying to stand firm on what the Bible teaches and he's being persecuted as a result. And in one particular instance, 
he was accused, this was his, resulted in his first exile, he was falsely accused of the most ridiculous thing. He was accused of kidnapping a fellow monk, taking him, obviously kidnapping, taking him captive, cutting off his hands and using his hands for magic, like kidnapping him, killing him, cutting off his hands and using his hands for magical incantation. It's the most stupid and ridiculous allegation ever. But it's kind of a fun moment in church history, so we'll end with this. This is from John Piper. Athanasius' enemies uh, bribed Arsenius. That was the name of this guy that he supposedly killed. Bribed Arsenius, a a bishop uh, in this town on the Nile in southern Egypt, to disappear so that they could spread the rumor, the rumor could be started, that Athanasius had arranged his murder and cut off one of his hands to use for magic. Constantine was told and asked for a trial to be held in Tyre. Meanwhile, one of Athanasius's trusted deacons had found Arsenius hiding in a monastery and had taken him captive and brought him secretly to Tyre. At the trial, the accused presented, excuse me, the accusers presented a human hand to confirm their uh, indictment. So in other words, they show up with a hand and they're like, this is the hand that Athanasius was using. But Athanasius was ready. Did you know Arsenius personally, he asked. Yes, he was, yes, was the eager reply from many sides. So Arsenius was ushered in alive, wrapped up in a cloak. When he was revealed to them, they were surprised but demanded an explanation of how he had lost his hand. So in other words, the accusation is you murdered this guy and cut off his hands and they bring in a hand and suddenly here's the guy and he's alive. They're like, whoa, okay, so you didn't kill him, but why did you cut off his hand? Athanasius turned up the cloak of Arsenius and showed that one of his hands at least was there. There was a moment of suspense artfully managed by Athanasius. Then the other hand was exposed and the accusers were requested to point out from where they had gotten the hand that had been cut off. I love that. I mean, what a crazy story, Um, but what a great story. Um, In spite of the fact that Athanasius was acquitted of that particular crime, he still ended up getting exiled because he was accused of all sorts of things. Uh, He was accused of interfering with the wheat shipments from Alexandria to Rome and that kind of stuff. So he got exiled. He got exiled to, on that particular case, uh, part of Central Europe near modern-day Belgium. And the rest of the times he got exiled was mainly to the wilderness of Egypt where he was um, actually where he encountered uh, some of the early monastics. But that's a story for a different time. Where I really want to land the plane this morning in the negative two minutes that I have left. (laughs) It's just with this point. The doctrine of the deity of Christ is a doctrine that is worth defending because it's true. And Athanasius was willing to defend it even though it cost him greatly. Not only that, but the reason he was willing to defend it is because he understood that it is a doctrine that is clearly revealed on the pages of Scripture. And I think the takeaway for us is that being reminded of these truths, number one, should inform our worship because we worship Jesus as God and to do anything less is blasphemous. 
And number two, that we also should be ready to defend the honor and glory of our Savior so that whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or somebody who's read a Dan Brown novel or anyone else who would diminish or deny the doctrine of the deity of Christ, we would at least respond with the same zeal as Nicholas of Myra or Athanasius of Alexandria. Again, we don't punch people in the face ever, but we do take a stand for the honor and glory of our Savior because He's not just a man. He is the God who became man, God the Son who took on flesh and as the Son of Man has redeemed us if we have believed in Him. Right? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to talk about these things and to rehearse some of the history in your church when faithful believers took the truth of your word and were willing to take a stand to defend the doctrine of the deity of Christ. We do resonate with the words of Titus 2 that we are those who are looking for the blessed hope and the glory and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even recent events in the Middle East have reminded us that one day He will return and He will set all things right. And so we pray these things in His name as we echo the truth of Maranatha. Amen.